So first, uh, just an explanation of letters, because everybody keeps hearing measurable, minimal, MRD. So what is MRD? There has been a movement away from the use of the term minimal residual disease because minimal implies that it's not important and it's actually very important. So these substitutions you'll hear frequently throughout the talks, myeloma, CLL, all of these diseases have MRD as an important feature, but we like measurable better. So what's the problem? Why aren't we curing more patients with AML? And you've just heard about CML and APL, so two myeloid diseases, which in the last 20 years, therapy has been absolutely revolutionized. These went from universally fatal diseases to universally, almost universally curable. I haven't used chemotherapy for APL in I don't know how many years. And I think that the, the feature is that these are molecularly defined diseases with measurable levels of disease molecularly that can be tracked over time. In AML, what happens is that AML treatments are not eliminating all of the leukemia cells, whether they are leukemia-initiating cells or leukemia stem cells. When you look under the microscope and you see a bunch of blasts, they're not all the same. Remission is allowing restoration of normal blood counts, but the leftovers are important and they eventually recapitulate disease. Again, whether or not there is a stem cell population or a leukemia-initiating cell or whatever you want to call it, there are leftovers. And in AML, unlike the myeloid biology diseases that we've been talking about, APL and CML, they are not specifically categorizable in a neat bucket, like with a PCR for BCR-ABLE or for PMLRAR-alpha. So here we've got a whole mess of choices. So quantification of MRD is an attempt to demonstrate the leftovers both by quantity but also potentially by quality because what's left over in AML may not actually be the same as what you started out with. So the leftover disease doesn't necessarily only represent what your treatment needs to clean up, but it might also represent something that's biologically resistant to treatment. So again, the definition here is, is it leukemia biology, drug resistance mechanisms, the adequacy of treatment, maybe you do just need more, and other possible host interactions or immunologic responses that may be allowing a residual population to just hang out in the patient. So cytogenetics, flow cytometry, PCR, and next generation sequencing are our tools, but welcome to the complexity of AML, they may all be applicable for a certain patient. You may be able to have a patient who has cytogenetically, flow cytometrically, molecularly, and sequencing defined lesions. So what are you looking for and when are you looking for it are major questions in the discussion of MRD. If you look here at the sensitivities, what you want to be careful of is that if you look at PCR and you look at sequencing, I will stipulate to it, you can always find something. The technologies are so good now that you can go to one in a trillion or one in a gazillion or whatever is higher. The question is, does it matter? Not can I detect it, but does it matter for the patient, A, and B, what am I going to do about it when I find it? So the first question is for an individual patient, which one of these are you even going to look for? You certainly know that 
that when you look under the microscope, the morphologic remission is not good enough. We all know that even patients in a solid morphological CR have plenty of leftovers, and you can see the orders of magnitude that are potentially left over when you have a CR. So this is, of course, disappointing for patients when you have 5% blasts or 3% blasts, you've got normal blood counts, you feel great. There are leftovers in there, and we just have to figure out how much is left over. So in 2017, we worked very hard, actually, the committee to define a new response outcome in AML. This was a lot of work, but CR isn't just CR anymore. There's something called MRD negative CR. And we said this, and we put a lot of data and suggestions into the paper, but it's still not 100% sure what are we looking for and at what threshold and in what test for AML, which is what makes my job in the next few minutes a bit more complicated. So it's kind of you know it when you see it. So we know that if you have MRD as assessed by multi-parameter flow cytometry, you know that if there is left over disease by flow, it is highly prognostic. These curves, all you need to do, everything that's on the top is for MRD negative patients. Your relapse-free survival is better. Your overall survival is better if you attain MRD negativity by flow. Flow cytometry is appealing for this because everybody with AML can certainly get a flow cytometry test, but there is antigen shift. Flow cytometry experts cannot agree, and if there is more than two in the room, even the two won't agree, but when there are 20 in the room, forget it. They can't agree on exactly which panel, exactly which are important. Important. It is glitchy, to say the least, to try to have standardization of flow, so we are working toward attempts at at least harmonization. My take-home message from this, though, when you see a report that is coming back in your lab on, you know, oh, MRD by 0.3%. 0.3% is a ton of disease by flow cytometry. So 0.1% is a ton of disease. These uh, numbers have been perhaps misunderstood in clinical reports, and the bottom line is that 0.1% is an absolute, absolute minimum cutoff. If you have disease that's higher than that, the patient's in trouble. Now here, the problem is they're in trouble even with an allo stem cell transplant, and we know that using various flow cytometry techniques if you are still detectable at the time of your allo transplant, the overall survival is not as good as if you're not detectable. Does that mean we don't do transplant? No, clearly we're still doing transplants. But the point is that if you have MRD by flow cytometry, it is influencing the outcome of even our very best therapy. And I'm going to talk about this um, in, a, in a couple of more uh, slides as I move on. So here, if you look at PCR-based MRD, we have certain AMLs that are molecularly defined. For example, if you have an IDH mutation, a, a FLT3 mutation, an NPM1 mutation. These are things that we can track. NPM1 in particular has the best data for tracking PCR-based MRD in the peripheral blood, by the way, not in the bone marrow, as, um, a, uh, as an indicator of, um, of relapse risk after the second cycle of consolidation. Note to the clinicians, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get an undetectable result immediately. What it means is that you need to be consistently tracking NPM1 via PCR, which by the way is available in commercial labs, and making sure that that number is either getting better and better over time or steady, uh, staying stable. 
sorry, that went away. If you look here, this is another one for core binding factor patients. This is just an example in inversion 16. This should be followed and tracked using PCR. A lot of people will ask the question, well, if they, what, why are you tracking all of this? Have you saved any lives? If you track the disease and you watch it blipping up, can you save anyone by responding to that early? I'm not 100% sure. That trial is difficult, but what we do know is that if you have a rise in transcripts as measured by PCR, that patient is very likely to relapse and at the very least should be monitored frequently. If you look here of a meta-analysis, this was published a couple of years ago of MRD and AML prior to transplant. Basically, these are a lot of studies that are compared with a lot of differences between them. But if you look at the forest plot, everything is on one side of the forest plot. If you have positivity by flow and or PCR, it leads to inferior transplant outcomes. So the question is, what do we do about that information clinically? By the way, if you're a regulator, just because you have MRD and it leads to worse outcomes, we still have to prove to the universe that getting rid of the MRD will lead to better outcomes, and that's a different story. So intuitively, it feels better to be MRD negative, but can we prove that if we put on an intervention and make you MRD negative, that you're going to live longer? That is a harder trial to do. It gets worse. In sequencing now, this is next generation sequencing, which half of us can't get back for two weeks when we send it initially. If you look at um, newly diagnosed patients who have a collection of mutations, and 80% of them, almost 90% here, had at least one mutation detected um, at the time of initial diagnosis. When this came out in the New England Journal, everybody went crazy because basically the mutations were persisting in over 50% of the patients at the time of uh, remission, not looking again at the DTA mutation. So DNMT3, TET2, and ASXL1 mutations are in a potentially different category. They're considered part of clonal hematopoiesis, and that gets a whole other hour of discussion at this meeting next year. But for right now, the bottom line is most patients have mutations. Most patients still have mutations at the time when you're at the end of induction. Well, now what am I going to do about that? Um, furthermore, if you look over here, it looks like a multimodality assessment of MRD can be um, optimal because if you have next generation and multi-parameter flow that are both negative or both positive, it separates these curves out a lot. So this is giving an idea of the clinical complexity of getting back results on a patient that might actually have conflicting measurements of disease. Which one are you going to look at? If your flow looks negative but you have a molecular report that's showing positivity, what are you going to do with it? And there is absolutely no way to answer that question quickly at the moment because the answer is it depends. It depends what is detectable, what time point you're detecting it at, and what is the therapy that the patient received. Now, I have a very elegant colleague um, who viewed this as a pile of hay. As a New Yorker, to me, it looked like something different from hay. Um, but he is more elegant than I am, so I will say that we have found MRD in our pile of 
hey, it really does look like the emoji thing to me, but whatever. It, the, the, the idea is, all right, I found it, Eureka, now what am I gonna do with it? And that is actually a big problem that's leading to some burning questions. What is the best test? Is it flow, next-gen, PCR? The answer to that question is there is no answer to that question because flow is cheap and can be tested in everybody, but it's glitchy and difficult to standardize. Next-generation sequencing is expensive and time-consuming and difficult to repeat and will, in fact, detect mutations as the technology gets better. We're always going to detect something. PCR is by far the most sensitive and the most straightforward, but not everybody has a PCR lesion. So what does that leave us with is likely a multimodality assessment. That's not fun because that means clinicians have a lot of work to try to pick between them. If I get a CML patient with a BCR-ABLE, it's not rocket science for me to look at the report and see where the BCR-ABLE is on graphs that are correlated with outcomes. If I get a clinical AML report with four different measurements of AML, of uh, MRD and AML that don't agree, then I have anxiety which is why I have a lot of anxiety. At what point in treatment should they be measured? After induction, after consolidation? Does it matter if you get a venetoclax-based induction or a 7 and 3-based induction? What is the timing of the measurement of MRD? We don't actually know the answer to that question. Does the timing depend on the regimen? And what if they don't all show the same result? What if I'm doing multi-modality testing, as I indicated, and they are discrepant? It looks like one is negative, one is positive. And also, does this matter? at all in the non-intensive regimens, what is the impact of this in older patients who may never actually be going on to transplant? These are um, difficult questions, and the reason I specifically bring them up is that MRD can't be viewed as a simple thing in AML. It's not simple to order, it's not simple to interpret, and there is a lot of question actually about what to do with it. So unlike in some of your other sessions, um, where there are going to be more clear uh, cutoffs, I would say that AML is still a to be interpreted uh, with caution. Furthermore, if that wasn't bad enough, just because we know it's there and are unhappy that it's there, that doesn't mean we know how to get rid of it. As I pointed out earlier in the talk, this may fundamentally represent biological resistance to whatever your treatment was. So am I gonna give you another cycle of something? I don't know. If you went down from 90% to 2% of something, the implication is that maybe you just need a little bit more of whatever the treatment was, except if the reason that those initial cells didn't die is because they're resistant. So we would love to have a qualitative assessment of what's left over to help guide therapy. We don't have that yet. You can't order anything like that in the office right now. The other thing, just to make things maximally complicated, is that MRD-positive patients don't always relapse, and MRD-negative patients, we haven't discovered the fountain of youth, they don't live forever, and they're often not cured. So what is the problem here? There are absolutely, for example, core binding factor positive patients or NPM1 mutated patients who have detectable transcripts for years after therapy. It would be a terrible mistake to whack those patients with a transplant or to go in doing something that's getting rid of a result on a page when we know that those patients can have multi-year survival. So the question is when you have a remainder of disease, when you have detection of MRD, that has to be correlated specifically with survival in the group of patients being tested. 
This is something that should be a lot of caution because I look um, uh, all the time at consultations for patients with CBF disease, for example, who have detectable transcripts. That doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is going to relapse at all, and it certainly doesn't mean that they should be um, shuttled into a transplant. Now, here's a trial I was referring to earlier. This was just published recently. So what we're trying to do actually is answer these questions. And in Italy, this trial was a risk-adapted MRD-directed therapy for young adults with newly diagnosed disease. And I really think the group should be commended for this incredible effort because what we're trying to do is test what we know. Well, what if you use MRD to make a clinical decision? What happens to the patients? So it's hard to read these things from a distance, but basically the idea is if you have so-called ELN favorable risk disease, you're not getting offered a transplant. But everybody else, we don't really know what to do. And the concept was that if you've got bad cytogenetic or ELN um, uh, assessed disease, you're going to get a transplant. If you've got favorable, you're not. But if you're in that majority who have intermediate risk disease, how about if we randomize you so that if you are, uh, we randomize you on the basis of your MRD positivity, in this case by flow cytometry. And Basically, what they were able to show is that it kind of looked the same for MRD-negative patients by flow, and parentheses, the Italian group is going way deeper than what we are in the U.S. They're going to 10 to the minus 3 or 10 to the minus 4 for flow. But Nonetheless, they were able to show that for intermediate risk patients who are MRD negative, those patients going on to an autologous transplant looked pretty much the same as if you were able to, um, as if you took an MRD positive patient into an aloe. So the idea is, might we be able to use MRD to spare certain selected patients the toxicity of an aloe and do either chemotherapy and, or an auto instead? I think these are a great um, starting point for data. There's going to be a lot of discussion about this, and certainly autologous transplant has fallen out of favor in the United States. But actually, four cycles of HIDAC isn't so much fun for a lot of patients. And if, if you can get the job done with a single auto transplant, or even just with four cycles of HIDAC, if we could separate out those patients who don't need an aloe, that would be a huge improvement. So this is quite thought-provoking. This also was very important to think about. This was presented by Chris Hurrigan at um, EHA in uh, this past June, that looking at the intensity of the conditioning regimen with aloe transplant for the um, AML patients who had genomic evidence of residual disease. This was a super presentation in which he actually went through a lot of the difficulty in putting together the data and the specimens required for this analysis. But basically, if you look through these curves, and I made them as big as I possibly could so that you could see, the blue on the top is next generation negative with a myeloablative conditioning. The green uh, hatched is next generation negative, so MRD negative by sequencing with a reduced intensity conditioning. And then the bottom um, to the red hatched and the little purple dots are the next generation positive with a myeloablative conditioning and the next generation positive with a reduced intensity conditioning. If you stare at this for a minute, you will conclude that we actually may have made a mistake 
mistake over the years in saying that for patients over 60 that the reduced intensity conditionings are just as good as the myeloablatives because at least in these data looking at sequencing, if you actually got a reduced intensity transplant and you were positive by uh, sequencing, you did a lot worse. And the point also that has to be taken from this is that is it possible that at least for some patients that the, uh, that the uh, flow, the next generation sequencing measured MRD may not be important if you are doing a, uh, an intensive or a myeloablative transplant. So I think this is very thought-provoking. This doesn't answer the question, but it does beg the question that if you're sending a patient into what you know is a reduced-intensity transplant, they can't handle more conditioning, and they're MRD detectable, are you sure you want to do that? And the flip side is, are you going to chase with a 1,000 cycles of something that you're not sure it's going to work, are you going to chase a few extra cells if that patient is going into an aloe anyway? And I think these are very important data that I am hoping will the full report will be published soon. Now that all is in sharp contra, uh, sharp distinction, I guess, to ALL. ALL is easier from an MRD perspective. It just is, which is why you're only getting a couple of slides on it. You're looking at flow. You're looking at PCR. We know what we're looking for, actually. There aren't these things of tremendous um, antigen shift and of different antigens being uh, present on myeloid differentiating cells. Here, we know what we're looking for. And if you've got it, your outcomes are actually much worse with ALL. If you look here, and these are data that are published very recently recently from the 10403 trial, which is a basically basic ALL trial, an asparaginase-based um, intensified for, uh, for younger patients, BFM type of backbone old standard ALL souped up as much as possible with um, asparaginase. And looking here at the uh, three-year DFS with um, MRD, uh, by MRD status, you can see an 85% three-year disease-free survival in adults with ALL, not typically an easy group to treat, by MRD status. So we know very clearly what we're looking for. It should be measured. If you're not sure how to check it in your ALL patients, please Please check with your lab and call your um, uh, call whoever um, your favorite leukemia person is to ask the question because it matters enormously for these patients to be correctly categorized as MRD negative or not. In addition to that, in ALL is what we want is happening. What we want to have for AML is that there's a drug here that helps us with MRD. So if there are leftovers here, we've got uh, blinitumumab, which is a bite. It's a bispecific T cell engager, in this case a CD3, CD19 um, bispecific, which hopefully grabs onto your MRD and makes it go away. And the point is that this is approved for the treatment of MRD-positive patients with ALL. What we want is a bite or a dart or an immunotherapy or any drug that comes along to deliver us this in AML2 so that we can show reliably that eradication of MRD in a particular group of AML patients would result in a survival benefit in the same way as this has done for ALL. This is standard of care in ALL. So MRD in AML is difficult and messy. MRD in ALL is well-established, should be tested in everybody and also has a drug if you have leftovers. Thank you very, very much for the invite back on stage.